Mona. So, so we return to Vipassana territory today. And there's going to be a theme that runs throughout the rest of Pinchin and Butch's discussion of emptiness, both the emptiness of individuals, of persons, and of all other kinds of phenomena. And that's the distinction between the basis of designation, basis, it's a technical term, and we'll learn them and then they're useful. I'm just like giving you a tool, like a fork or a knife, you know exactly what it means and then you can use it. And these are very useful tools. Uh, And so, basis of designation and designated object. Sometimes called basis of imputation, imputed object, fine, either one is fine. And the central theme that runs through this prasangika, this prasangika madhyamaka, as articulated by Benjaminovich and many, many others, uh, is that these two, for any given entity, are never the same. They're never identical. Never identical. So, for example, I can look over at Mary Kay, and I see, I see the front side of her body. Actually, I see a little bit of body, mostly clothing. Uh, and the clothing is not Mary Kay, and the face is not Mary Kay. But I say, oh, yeah, Mary Kay's right there, right? And I could describe her. Oh, she's fairly tall and so forth. What I'm looking at, that is the basis of designation there, is one can say her body, a bit more precise, precisely, the front side of her body, a bit more precisely, the visual appearance of the front side of her body. Okay? But none of those three are a person certainly not Mary Kay or anybody else. A visual appearance, which is arising in the space of my mind, that's not a person. The front side of her body isn't even a body. And even her body isn't a person. But I can say, is, is Mary Kay, is she in the room right now? And with total certainty, I say, yeah, she's right there. Yeah. And so on the basis of that, on that basis of designation, then I designate a person, Mary Kay, right? But they're not identical. They're not identical. Now, I could be walking around the corner and hear Mary Kay's voice. Like she could be speaking with someone and recognizing the voice. Say, oh, Mary Kay's right around the corner. Uh, Michelle might say, do you know if Mary Kay's around? I say, oh, yeah, I know she's right around the corner. I heard her speak. Well, I didn't even see her, but her voice is distinctive enough that on the basis of her voice, I impute an agent who is speaking, and on that basis, then I impute a person, but her voice is not a person. Right? Now, if Mary Kay had a dog, Dogs have a very good sense of, of smell, of course, and they will recognize many, many things by, by the scent. Just the scent. The scent of this person and that person. And they're very good at it. So if Mary Kay were coming home and her dog is eagerly awaiting her, he might, he or she might, first up pick up the scent and then think in dog language, oh, Mary Kay's home. <laughs> On the basis of scent. You know, scent. Like and so you can see, if, if Mary Kay and I were exploring a tunnel together and then... I'm not quite where she was, and I reach out and I, and I touch her shoulder. Oh, you're there, good. I, I thought maybe I'd lost you, you know. And so on the basis of tactile sensation, or that, right, firmness, earth element, I said, oh, there you are. And she said, yeah, there I am. Yeah, I'm, I'm, here. I'm here. And she taps me back on the shoulder, right. And so none of these things are a person, but each of those is legitimate. These are valid bases of designation. Touch, scent, sight, sound, and so forth. But then Mary Kay may be sitting quietly and observing her own mind, and she might, in the course of her meditation, which we're going to soon begin, um, she might just quite naturally and accurately think, I'm getting a bit bored, or I'm a bit agitated, or my mind is wandering, 
I'm, I'm, getting, I'm, I'm, I'm getting distracted. Uh, I'm really enjoying this. I'm having so many memories, and so on and so on. And in each of those cases where the word I is coming up, you can examine, is the I that is designated, I, Mary Kay, is that identical to or different from that upon which that sense of I is imputed or designated? For example, if an unpleasant feeling comes up, I feel badly, but I'm not a feeling. I desire a bit of water, I'm getting thirsty, but I'm not a desire. I, I want some water, but I'm not a desire. And so forth and so on. So body parts, all of five senses, any type of mental activity. On, on the basis of these, we may quite legitimately, quite accurately, meaningfully, say I, I, I. Right? And yet in none of those cases is the basis, the basis of designation actually a person. Now that's true for everything else, which is quite remarkable. So I'm, I want to wrap this up because I want to get back to meditation, back to the text. But you remember in the early phases, kind of like I think the first week or two, uh, in the scene, let there be just a scene, in the herd, just the herd, that famous, I think we're all very, very familiar with that. And that very basic kind of foundational vipassana, so crucial and very much in tune with the Satrantika view and very much in tune with the foundational teachings and the four close applications of mindfulness. You recall that bringing out that razor very practically, very, you know, very down home where we live and distinguishing what's reality dishing up, what's simply being presented in the scene, there being just the scene, and so forth, the tactile, the auditory, the mental, and then what's being projected upon that, you know, such as imputing more permanence than is in fact there, imputing or projecting some sense of this this makes me happy. This landscape makes me very happy. Well, that means me. I just, anytime I open my eyes, I just have happiness coming up every time. If it's a source of happiness, right? And so imputing sources of happiness, of sukha, upon appearance, that's a projection. And of course, I and mind, the three marks of existence. And so we did that before. It's really, really useful, very, very practical in daily life. And now we're in that same continuum. We're just taking it from the, let's say, the Pali Canon to the Prashnaparamita, to Madhyamaka. And so we have these so-called bases of imputations arise. And then upon them we designate, we impute, or we project that which, that which wasn't there already, but we do so. And then what happens, and that's perfectly fine, just very casually with no reification. Um, Brendan may ask, uh, is Mary Kay around? Have you seen her? I said, oh yeah, she's right over there. That's not a delusional question or a delusional answer at all. There's no problem there at all. Right? And two Aryabhadasattvas could have that conversation. She'd still be over there. Right? It's fine. As long as we know what's going on. There's one statement from the sutras where the, I think it's the Tathagata, the Buddha was referred to as being saying, the Tathagata uses words but is not fooled by them. Something to that effect. Very close. So is Mary Kay there? Yeah, she's right over there. Yeah. But knowing how light, how feathery, how non-substantial that is. Not conflating the Mary Kay with that upon which I'm imputing her, which is never Mary Kay. So I'd like to bring this down home to our own practice. But it's helpful to have something there, very tangible. There's a person, and none of us seriously doubt that she's here. 
So that's, that's good. And then the question is ontology, and that is, in what manner is she here? She appears to be existing from her own side. Now that's a, na- that's a way of existing. She really is there from her own side, and she, this individual, is displaying her properties of her body, her form, her voice, her scent, and so forth and so on. But she's really there from her own side. That would be a, a way, a, a mode of existence. That's how she is. She's really there, and she bears her own attributes. And I'm here as a metaphysical realist, mapping what is the nature of the true Mary Kay who's already there. Let me write her biography. Let me take many photos. Let me get a very thorough account so I can represent, represent, represent the Mary Kay that's already there. Right? That's metaphysical realism. Most of science, but as we've seen, not all of science, is exactly after that. There's a universe out there. It already happened. It started 13.8 billion years ago or 7,000 years ago, whichever story you like. But it was already out there. And now the scientist comes in and said, well, let's find out what's really out there and we'll develop our theories and get better and better, more and more complete, more and more accurate and precise maps that represent what's already out there knowing that finally, if we ever complete this process, there will be one true map that accurately represents the one true reality that's absolutely out there, including big asteroids. Right? That's metaphysical realism. Most of science is fueled by that, very understandably. It's not stupid. It's really not stupid at all. The Theravada interpretation of the Pali Canon, by and large, it's saturated by metaphysical realism. It's not stupid at all. It may be mistaken, but it's not foolish. It's not foolish. And it takes a razor-sharp sword of Vipassana, of, vipassana, of Prajna, of the perfection of wisdom of, of Nagarjuna, and so forth, to cut through these appearances. Or, and there's one way of doing it, or the other way is get 400, 400 years of physics under your belt, and see where quantum mechanics and quantum, quantum cosmology takes you. And lo and behold, it really does look like there's a profound convergence there. So, how to, how to relate this to the practice? I will give a guided meditation, but I'd like to front-load it so I don't need to overburden you with my interventions uh, into the practice. And that is what I'd like to do here is, of course, settle body, speech, and mind, ground a bit, and then turn to the, the shamatha practice of uh, taking the mind as a path, or the shamatha practice of settling the mind as natural state. Okay? That's different than simply the culmination of settling body, speech, and mind in natural state. I never really clarified that, but I should right now, really briefly. That culmination of settling body, speech, and mind is simply coming to rest with no object, ready to go, but just resting in stillness, and then ready to do whatever you want to do, or just stay there as you like. That's the culmination of settling body, speech, and mind. And then there's the shamatha practice of settling body, speech, and settling the mind in its natural state. And that's where you are attending to one out of six domains of experience the space of the mind, and whatever arises in it. And then you take that all the way to the substrate. Okay. So it's the same term, sem nildubhava, settling mind in its natural state. One is simply a culmination of the preliminary preparatory practice. And the other one is for the long haul, weeks, months, or years, until your mind has settled in its natural state. And what that means is it's melted, become deconfigured, and your coarse mind has dissolved into subtle mind, and all you're left with is the substrate consciousness aware of the substrate and reflexively of itself. So I didn't clarify that before. Hopefully, and it's very easy to confuse. Same term, but used for different, different things that are related but not identical.
Okay? So what I'd like to do now, again coming back to the forthcoming meditation, is having settled body, speech, and mind, then take the mind onto the path, as usual, focusing on the space of the mind, whatever arises within it, and knowing full well that will include appearances arising to the mind. The soundtrack is very common. Imagery, like some comparable to visual imagery, is very common. So appearances will arise, images. But of course there will also be these subjective impulses, desires, feelings, thoughts, and so forth. The thinking, the thinking process and so forth. Emotions and so on. And so as those are arising, we're not going to just settle with shamatha, because we're now into Vipassana territory. But the shamatha is the basis for the shamatha. The shamatha is the basis for Vipassana. The stronger the shamatha is, the stronger your Vipassana can be. If the shamatha is weak, your Vipassana will never be strong. It's just the way it is. It's karmachamaramokji. It just said, well, it's true. And so as we are rest- resting in the shamatha, then we bring out that discerning intelligence, that mode of inquiry. And I invite you here then to ask, whenever there arises a sense of self, of I, anything, and, and a memory of your own appearance may come up. Oh, I'm putting on a bit of weight. Like that, just for example. I am getting a bit chubby. I'm, I'm. Okay, I am, okay. I'm imputing myself on a mental image of my body, which has probably 10 to 20 pounds more than I really need. Right? So I'm getting chubby, right? Or I'm getting old, blah, 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 you know, like that. Based on an appearance. Or one may have a recollection of one's voice, other appearances, and one may impute oneself upon the basis of appearances arising in the space of the mind. It's very easy to do. Especially when memories come up. Oh, then I was feeling so happy, or oh, I really like that person so much, and oh, 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 I, I, I. Imputed upon appearances arising in the mind. The appearances are not you. They're basis of designation of you. They're not you, right? But then also, up close and very, very personal, are the subjective impulses that come up. The desires, the feelings, the thinking process, the think that I, I think, therefore I am. I am the thinker, I'm thinking this and imputing myself upon this, uh, and so forth. So see if you can discern. This, take, this takes a sharp knife. As a sense of I arises relative to some appearances arising in the mind, or a sense of I arises relative to some subjective impulse in the mind, see if you can identify what's the basis of imputation, or the basis of designation, and the self that is designated upon that. Just doing that, it's not delusional. Any more than if I say, you know, just like, yeah, there's Mary Kay, or I'm speaking. It's not delusional at all. Of course, it's true. We designate, but then the tendency, the overwhelmingly deeply ingrained tendency, is to reify that which designated. So we designate, and then sta- stand off, like, who me? I didn't do that. As if now, suddenly, we're passive. That it, it's, that's already Mary Kay. Mary Kay is, you know, blah, blah, blah. That we impute that designated object and then, not even noting that we did it, we just see it as out there, as if our awareness of it is completely passive. As if this is not a participatory event, but a purely witnessing event. Right? Now, this, this really, really strikes home uh, when we 
have judgments, for example, about other people. If, if I can just make a brief foray here, I'll try to be very polite, but it looks like Donald Trump is going to be the nominee for the Republican Party to become commander-in-chief. And so I saw a photo of him, and I had a very strong designation come up. <laughs> really, really strong. Like, I'm just witnessing that this person is such and such, that he has certain this quality. This is an expression of such and such. And if all seven billion human beings were all looking, they'd all agree with me. If God exists, God would agree with me. If all the thousand Buddhas of this fortunate Kalpa looked, they would agree, yes, Alan, you got it right. <laughs> it feels that way. And if anybody disagrees, I'm sorry, you're delusional. I got this one right. <laughs> I absolutely got this one right, you know? As if I'm simply witnessing, you know, and there is no process of designation, that this person is inherently, and I'm not going to put him down. He doesn't need that from me. You don't need that from me. But just this person is inherently, and then you fill in the adjective, whatever, whatever feels suitable. <laughs> yeah. But it won't be the same. His wife, his daughter, his friends, and so forth, his supporters. It looks like a majority of Republicans want to have him as president. Yeah. That's a lot of people. So far, anyway. Um, but to watch that, and I'm taking kind of an obvious example, he's a you know, big media person right now, that too will pass. But it's all the time that we're making these evaluations that we feel are not evaluations. No, I, that wasn't my evaluation, I just observed that. You know? And it's for people, it's for situations, it's places, things, all kinds of things. That's not my evaluation, that's my, not my opinion, that's what I, that's what I observed. And that's where the reification comes in. It already was as I apprehended it. And my role here is simply the passive witness. That's delusional. And then, of course, we can get fierce disagreements. I mean, there have been clashes. There have been these, you know, these real, you know, some violence in the demonstrations for and against Mr. Trump. And each side is persuaded that they're perceiving this man in the correct way, and that the other half is simply delusional, and they should, be, they should be silenced, they should be suppressed, they shouldn't be able to do this. These people are, they got it wrong, you know, and therefore they shouldn't have a vote, they should, be, they should be swept to the side. We should drown them out, we shouldn't let them speak, because they're wrong, because we know our perspective is right. Well, how long has that been going on, you know? And so then, I mean, if it's, if so far it's just been a skirmish here and there, but when we consider world wars throughout all of history, it always comes down to that. We have the right perspective. And if you differ from us, you're wrong. So we'll have to suppress you, kill you, silence you, overwhelm you, like that. So when it says that this reification, it sounds like this kind of this esoteric, abstract, philosophical term that could only be of interest to people who are concerned with metaphysical realism. But it turns out reification is at the root of all mental afflictions. Craving hostility, the whole, the whole shebang. It's said in the Majamaka that any mental affliction that arises of any of the 84,000 kinds or you know, all, the, all the different lists the Buddhists have of primary and secondary mental afflictions, they all, for them to launch and have power, they are all rooted in delusion. And it's a delusion of reification, the delusion of dualistic grasping. 
So the stakes are actually very, very high. This is absolutely not a matter simply of interest to philosophers. Or if it is, it's really a shame, because this is really core to the suffering that we experience from day to day as individuals, communities, nations, and so forth and so on. So to shine a bright light on the nature of the delusional process itself, to see how we do impute a designated object upon a basis of designation, that we are participants in this reality, filled with objects of our own making, how we impute and then how we reify, and on the basis of reification, then very easily feel hostility for this group and attachment for this group, attachment from my side, aversion to the other side. Then we see, oh, this is a high-stakes game. This is significant. Oh, not so. So that was a lot of front load. Hopefully now I can use very few words and just like throwing darts at a dartboard. Just be very concise. So please find a comfortable position. We'll go in. Settle the body, speech, and mind in a state of dynamic balance, of equilibrium, so that they are serviceable for meaningful endeavors such as the practice of vipassana.
then from that relative stillness, let your eyes be gently open, your gaze resting vacantly in the space in front of you, and single-pointedly focus your attention on the space of the mind, one of six domains of experience. Selectively focus on this one, and on any or whatever mental events, in terms of both objective appearances and subjective impulses, that arise and are perceived within this domain. Rest in stillness, observe movement. Now we introduce into this shamatha practice the spirit of inquiry, keeping on the, the alert now for the arising of a sense of I relative to any appearances that it might arise in the mind that trigger the sense of I. These could pertain to you in the past or in the future or in the present but also the subjective impulses that arise from moment to moment. Oh, I'm practicing well. I'm getting so distracted. I'm feeling a bit tense. And so on and so on. As soon as you see that you've designated the sense of I, or I am, which is something projected, imputed, designated, See with the razor-sharp blade of your intelligence if you can distinguish between the eye that you have designated and the basis on which you have designated it from moment to moment. And note also the range, the variety of bases of designation upon which you may impute yourself. It's not always the same. Examine closely.
but you can clearly see for yourself <coughs> that you have projected the designated object, in this case, yourself, upon, the de- upon varying bases of designation. But the designated object wasn't already there. You didn't discover it, you projected it, imputed it. When you see that clearly, that you've added something to reality from your own side, then it immediately follows that whatever that basis of designation was, in terms of its own nature, is empty of that which you've designated upon it. The designated object is nowhere to be found, objectively within the basis of designation, because it wasn't there in the first place. So realize the emptiness of the basis of designation empty of the objects that are designated upon them. The designated objects do not exist from the side of the basis of designation. Is it true or not? Examine closely. And if at times you become a bit fatigued, this is certainly challenging, then slip back. Rest your mind. Rest in the stillness of your awareness and simply observe the thoughts and other events arising and passing, like a shepherd observing his flock out on an open plain. When you're rested, you may may return to the practice of Vipassana. Let's continue practicing now in silence.
Ronasso. So I'd like to make a brief interlude before returning to the text, again providing glue, my intention, to really merge together, integrate the practice that we're doing here on a daily basis and these rather advanced teachings of a very, very deep Vipassana practice. And for that I wanted to return to a story that I have to say my memory was kind of vague because if I remember correctly, the last time I heard the story was when Gishingan Taige told it, the story of Milarepa and the, and the demons. And if that's a lot, and I, I think I've, he was the only one I heard it from, and if so, I heard it about 44 years ago. So, you know, memory is a bit wobbly. Um, Tarat in the Lamrim. In the, in the, and the, the book, his book, uh, The Tibetan Tradition of Mental Development, those are my class notes that were edited, so they'll be there. If it's in there, it'll be in that book, yeah. So, but back to the story of Malarepa, and so I checked it out. And it's a good story. It's even better than what I gave. But what I gave, I was happy to see it wasn't actually, it was not incorrect. But we'll see how this relates to our practice here, of the settling the mind as natural state, and to the teachings and emptiness. Good to weave these together, integrate them, yeah? So here's the story. I found the most definitive story, uh, source I could find on the... Uh, on the internet, uh, the most definitive would be go to, to go to his, you know, definitive biography. But this, I think, is pretty good. I think this strikes me as authentic. So here's the story. One day, Milarepa returned with firewood to his cave. This is not too long after Mil- uh, Marpa, his guru, had given him the full empowerment, oral transmission, explanations, fully l- launched him, gave him all the teachings he needed, teachings, empowerment, and so forth, to launch him into long-term solitary retreat. Basically, going to retreat until you're enlightened. So Milarepa gave him everything he needed. Yeah, and so Milarepa was up there in his cave, and of course he had obstacles. He had good days and bad days, apparently. Strange thing. And one day, and he had a fierce storm that was quite upsetting. But one day, Milarepa returned with firewood to his cave, and found it invaded by five horrific demons with eyes as large as saucers. <laughs> Shocked. Milleratly politely introduced himself. <laughs> such, such, a, such a gentleman. And asked them to leave. That's very courteous. You know, people show up uninvited as guests in your home. You say, well, hello, my name's Alan. Um, would you please go? Pacifying. Pacifying, right? The first, you tried that one. Would you please go? Maybe you came to the wrong address. Yeah. At this... The demons became menacing, surrounding him while growling, grimacing, and laughing maliciously. They sound like street thugs. So, Milarepa was alarmed and attempted the most powerful, powerful of exorcism recitations to no avail. So try to, you know, just get them, go, go, please, go. But to no avail. The demons became even more threatening. So next, the yogin tried with great compassion to pacify them with Buddhist teachings. So give them some of the second, second mode, enrich them. Give them a Dharma talk. That'll do it, you know? Enrich their understanding with a compassionate motivation. How about the Four Noble Truths? You know? uh, but they still remained more vivid and horrible than before. I guess they didn't like his Dharma talk. Finally, Milarepa realized that his approach was mistaken and that he needed the most direct means possible. 
having proclaimed the fearlessness with which, which he had discovered in his practice, Milarepa followed the training given him by his guru. He invited the demons to stay with him and to receive his hospitality. So, gave up the whole notion of banishing them. He said, stay, hang out. Now, that's where some versions of the story stop. They stop too soon. The story's not finished. If we stop right there, this sounds eerily similar to kind of the mindfulness movement in its less intelligent manifestations. And that is, whatever comes up, don't exercise any judgment whatsoever. Mental afflictions, wholesome, unwholesome, no judgment, just... And don't judge yourself, for heaven's sakes. And don't question anything. Just be non-judgmental. Be accepting of whatever comes up in your mind stream. And be comfortable in the, in the company of your mental afflictions. If people find it helpful, I'm glad they find it helpful. That's not Buddhism. That's not Buddhism. That is not even remotely Buddhism. To get comfortable with your mental afflictions... And then to go on and say this is the essence of Buddhist meditation without the Buddhism is not only false, but it's really profoundly misleading. And so it's not that. Uh, That's not Buddhist meditation at all. It's more just status quo. But being more comfortable with your mental afflictions than you were before. But the notion you'll ever be free of them that way is simply absurd. So it's really unfortunate then if one stops the story there. Because it seems to reinforce, well, just get friendly with your mental afflictions. They're not that bad after all. You're only human. What do you expect? Human beings have craving and lust and greed and jealousy, but we're only human, so just kind of be comfortable with that. And for heaven's sakes, I've read this a number of times in the media, don't strive for perfection. You'll never achieve that. That's really wrong. Don't strive for perfection and be real. You know, Accept your limitations. Accept your mental afflictions. Just go you know, get comfortable. Enjoy life. Okay? That's okay. If people find that helpful, I guess so. But that's not even remotely Buddhism. But he did. He invited the demons to stay with him and receive his possibility. Now, here I recall very vividly, it's from Zogiramachi. He uses a, another metaphor uh, for settling the mind in its natural state. It's very nice. I remembered it from years ago. He said, Be the gracious host in the midst of unruly guests. Okay? I think we all understand exactly what that means. So the gracious host, of course, is the stillness of your own awareness. Not glomming onto, not fighting with, or becoming attached to, or identifying with any of the unruly guests of whatever arises in your mind, which is all kinds of things, but being the gracious host in the midst of unruly guests, just being present, being present, but without the cognitive diffusion, just being present. So it seems like Okay, he did that, right? Because he said, you know, I welcome you to say. In other words, I'm not letting you go. I'm letting you be in the space of my mind, these five demons with eyes as big as saucers. But he didn't, and let me, you know, receive hospitality. So really, so far, this sounds like shamatha. It sounds like shamatha. I'm just going to rest in stillness and hang out, make yourself comfortable, whatever. But that's not where the story ends. He also challenged them to a friendly contest of teachings. A bit like Gishino and Taike, this great big grin. It's a, that's truly a friendly contest. Because they're really contesting, they're really debating, they're def- definitely competing 
but it's joyful, it's friendly, and it's very, very sharp. Razor sharp, and it's very fast. See, two accomplished meditators, oh, they do not sit back and say, let me think about that for a while. Oh, everybody just burst into laughter. They burst into laughter. It's got to be sharp. It's kind of like two dualists. It just doesn't stop. Very snappy. So here it is. We've seen this. We, he also challenged to a friendly contest of teachings. And then he addresses them. Ye ghosts and demons, enemies of the Dharma, I welcome you today. It is my pleasure to receive you. I pray you, stay. Do not hasten to leave. We will discourse and play together. Although you would be gone, stay the night. And then he says, we will pit the black against the white dharma and see who plays the best. Before you came, you, avowed to, you vowed to afflict me. Shame and disgrace would follow if you returned with this vow unfulfilled. <laughs> so he's, he's invited him to a contest. Now, bear in mind, before he ever met Marpa, he was an accomplished sorcerer. That's how he was able to do his nefarious deeds, killing all those people. He had to have pretty darn good samadhi for that. And he did, he was a wielder of, of the dark arts. I accept that literally. And so in that case, where he killed these 30, 35 people who had treated his own family so badly, especially his uncle, uh, he was using ferocity, he was using wrath, and he used it, directing, directing his wrath, his ferocity, his destructive ability, he used that against people, sentient beings. And he intended to cause misery, and he did. On one occasion, this is also a very old memory, but as I saw, as he went about, it was really like, it's actually very sinister. Because he, using his, his, his abilities, this dark magic. It's not magic, though, just these dark abilities. He wiped out the crops, the, the material possessions of his uncle and aunt, who were his primary targets. And then he killed all the rest of them. That would be 35 people or so. He killed all their kinsmen. And he left them standing. He left them unscathed. This is really very sinister. There's no happy smile on this one. He wiped them out financially, killed off all their relatives, all their loved ones, and left these two. And his intention was, now you, may you live the rest of your days, days in bitterness and grief. And now this is how I get back at you for what you did to my family. It was sheer revenge, very malevolent. So he took his, the power of his mind, the powers that he had, he had acquired through this other teacher, and he directed his ferocity, his wrath, his hatred, his malevolence, and he created great misery. Right? He, already, he still knew how to do that. When he started with Marpa, he didn't have amnesia. He still knew how to exercise those black arts. But now he's under an enlightened master rather than another kind. So now these five demons are appearing, and he knows that you know, he's got a mafiosa background. He knows how to do mass murders. He knows that he has this ability. But now these, but these are not five people that came in. These are five demonic apparitions coming in, right? And he's challenging them, white against black, the dark side, the bright side. You know. So it's now it's much more interesting, isn't it? Then they all just left happily ever after. Then they they played house for the rest of their lives with the mental fictions, and they all just got really cozy and watched soap operas together. Okay, I find that kind of a boring ending. So he says. Although you would be gone, 
maybe you feel a little bit, you know, like I want you to go, stay the night. We will pit the black against the dark. We'll pit the dark side against the white side and see who plays the best. Before you came, you vowed to afflict me. Shame and disgrace would follow if you returned with his vow unfulfilled. So he was reserving the last mode of enlightened activity as the one that still could be used. He tried pacifying, he tried enriching, he tried power, and they're still there. And clearly he does want them to leave. He wants to be in solitary retreat, not have five housemates. So the last mode of enlightened activity, ferocity, is the final resort for an accomplished yogin like Milarepa. He did this with a challenge, we will pit the black against the white dharma and see who plays best. And here he is referring to the black magic and sorcery of his past training, his central shadow directly confronted by the white magic of Buddhism, which can accommodate and purify the black. So this is Vajrayana. You're taking that malevolence. Look at Vajrayana, look at Yamantaka. Look at Mahakala. Look at Pandilhamo. You know, these, these are ferocious. They are ferocious. And these are said to be enlightened beings, not just some worldly deities who are in a bad mood. You know? And so it's taking that energy, which is the mental affliction of hatred, and transmuting it to something that in fact empowers you on the path to enlightenment and purifies the mental afflictions along the way. Okay? It's very high-tech, very kind of an alchemical approach. And Milarepa was thoroughly trained in that by his teacher Marpa. So he's going to take that malevolent dark force that he had mastered earlier, which was dark and used as dark, and he's going to use that now and transmute it under the guise and with the motivation of the Dharma that he learned from Marpa. And so he's going to use that. He's, he's directly confronted by the white magic. That dark is directly confronted by the white magic of the Buddha Dharma, which can accommodate and purify, transmute the dark. Having challenged the demons, Milarepa arose and rushed with great confidence directly at them. So this is where the story comes to an end. You can imagine he wasn't just kind of rushing at them as a skinny little yogi. He's going to be rushing at them in a way, a way that's going to terrify them. Probably Mahakala is a pretty good guess. So Milarepa rose and rushed them with great confidence directly at them. They shrank in terror rolling their eyes and trembling violently, and then swirled together into a single vision and dissolved. With this, the activity of ferocity was completed, and Milarepa, the black sorcerer, was reclaimed by Milarepa, the white sorcerer. He took that violence, the malevolence, the hostility, ferocity, transmuted it into something where, in fact, there was no harm. But the demons that were apparitions of his own mind were dispelled. And that's the end of the story. I think it's a much more interesting story. And so, interpretation. I mean, I just spent a bit of time on this. Um, I don't have the right interpretation. I just look at a story and try to interpret it in a way that's most meaningful for me. I think we've all heard of the five obscurations, right? Which, when we're practicing shamatha, they may arise in ways that are seem very demonic, with eyes as big as saucers. And they taunt us, they challenge us, they ridicule us. They really make our lives very difficult, right? And all of them do, don't they? On different occasions, in different ways, of course. But demon of hedonic fixation, completely taking us away from Dharma, throwing us out in the sea of samsara, 
this, the, this real malevolent demon of ill will, malevolence, hostility, makes our life just hell, right? Laxity and dullness, which just sends us into a stupor. Excitation and anxiety never gives us any rest, no peace of mind. But I'm going to linger only on the last one, because I think it's relevant for people here. Not only one or two, probably more than that. Afflictive uncertainty. A lot of the teachings here, no one, certainly not I, expects anyone here listening by podcast or here in, in, in Tuscany to simply be accepting everything I'm saying. That would be kind of missing the whole point. Oh, Alan said it must be true, I believe. Boy, would that be missing the, missing the whole point, right? It wouldn't even help you just to believe all this stuff and then go home. Hey, honey, I have brought home a lot more beliefs than I left home with. Good, put them in the, put them in the garage. We, the house is full. Put them in the garage. We'll find some storage for them someplace. Useless. So, of course, when our beliefs or assumptions, let alone the beliefs and assumptions of many hundreds of millions of people around us, including highly intelligent, very educated people, when we're challenging their beliefs and assumptions, well, we shouldn't do so casually. Especially, you know, we many of us have been educated into those assumptions, beliefs, and so forth, if we've had any kind of science education at all. But also in the humanities, when I was studying religious studies at, at Stanford University, the one thing you never do is take a religious approach to, to religious studies. We studied Marx, we studied Freud, we studied materialist deconstructions, uh, anthropological deconstructions, sociological deconstructions, psychological deconstructions, economic deconstructions, atheistic deconstructions. We had to study all of that. You know, and then write papers on it of all of the ways that people completely tend to deconstruct and, and discredit religion. That was part of our education. And if you ever write a doctoral thesis in which you appear to be championing Buddhism in a secular university, good luck with that. You know, it's not how it's done. You're supposed to take an objective stance, and if that's completely materialistic, that's perfectly fine. But for heaven's sakes, don't take a Buddhist stance, because then you've lost your objectivity. Okay, I won't linger on there. But, when we encounter views such as Mount Maru may actually exist for starters, you know, and all the other ones, just the notion that phenomena don't exist from their own side, let alone Mount Maru, just that one, what? You know, uh, it's only right that uncertainty arises. If it doesn't, then either we are just brilliant and see right through the essence, or we're just lazy. And just accepting it because somebody, somebody else said so. And the Buddha expressly encouraged people not to do that. Mere hearsay, my teacher said, it's written in a, a great sutra or some other scripture and so forth. And so an uncertainty, so let's, let's follow here. For those, anybody experiences afflictive uncertainty about anything, not just about a Buddha Dharma, about your own abilities. Your own abilities to practice and really progress and, and deeply benefit from shamatha, vipassana, the four immeasurables, and so forth. Can you really get benefit, or are you pretty much just stuck right where you are? And this is always a window dressing, just icing on a really nasty cake. You know? Do you have any confidence in yourself to really proceed along the path, to reach the path, proceed along the path? Afflictive uncertainty, of course, arises, and for good reason. You know? We are not evidently surrounded by Arya Bodhisattvas, and people, we, don't have caves, we don't have the caves of Tuscany filled with you know, highly accomplished yogis who have achieved jhana. If they are, they're keeping a good secret. So, of course, afflictive uncertainty arises. 
And so when, an, when you're resting there and settling the mind in its natural state, or you're just walking along, minding your own business, and some afflictive uncertainty with eyes as big as saucers comes and starts to harass you, grimacing and growling and menacing, well, you could say, would you please leave? <laughs> and maybe they will if it's really a wimpy, mental, you know, afflictive uncertainty. Oh, gosh, well, now you ask me, well, of course I'll leave. Could happen, not too likely. And so if it persists, you may try to give it a good Dharma talk. Good luck with that. Or develop loving kindness and compassion for uncertainty. It really doesn't make any sense at all. They'll laugh at you. But to examine it closely, to acknowledge afflictive uncertainty as uncertainty, and then confront, engage, invite them to stay, and have a conversation. Apply two of the jhana factors. More general course investigation, subtle analysis. Cut through it. You don't have to drown them, drown them out, scream at them until they go, but engage them within a duel. A duel of wits, a duel of intelligence. And see who wins. Right. If you win, if you win, you see, the, you see the afflictive uncertainty come up, you bring your full intelligence out, and to your satisfaction, because you're the judge of the duel, not me or somebody else, if you engage with the afflictive uncertainty and you cut it right down and you say, I've just finished with you, right? It can happen. I've moved, moved through a lot of uncertainties I've had over the years. We all do. If, the, if it still comes back after it's beaten in a fair fight, then scare the crap out of it. <laughs> The, you know, this word I really want to have introduced into English because it's so good, it sounds like a swear word, and it's not. Basta! You know, it sounds like it should be, oh, you use one of those you know, six-letter words. But it's really good. Like, we've had our conversation, I've won, basta! Beat it! I'm finished. You have nothing more to say here. And if you want to manifest as Mahakala, that should be just fine. You know? But only after you've won the debate. Or maybe it was a really good doubt. And it was doubting something where your understanding was in fact flawed. In which case, you welcome them in. That was very, I'm so glad I doubted that. Otherwise, I would have been complacent in a misunderstanding. Okay? And in the midst of all of that, to recognize that each of those five mental afflictions is not inherently existent, that would be very helpful. Hola, so. Let's get back to Benjamin Mushi. Time is flying by. But it's a good story, right? We remember long after we forget Dharma talks and the terminology and you know sophisticated lists and so forth and so on. We tend to remember a good story, and I think that's probably as a 44-year-old memory of mine, which actually turned out to be doesn't have all the details. But I was happy to see, huh? Didn't get it wrong anyway. That's good. Okay, so now we go back to. Lamp so bright. I checked the, uh, the early ones where I had some qualms, and Roger Jackson's translations were actually fine. He's, a very, as I said before, a very capable scholar. And so I just interpret, but I stick with my interpretation of the preceding ones. Um, but his translations were fine. So we consider here, we continue on now. Also, as stated in the Perfection of Wisdom in 8,000 verses, the circling of all sentient beings because of grass. 
The circling of all sentient beings because of grasping at I and mine is samsara. So this circling about in the cycle of aging, sickness, and death, and so forth, this is all the root cause is grasping at I and mine. Okay? Familiar. The root delusion. The ultimate root of all flaws is conate self-grasping. Self-grasping means reification of the self, reification of oneself. Or the conate grasping at I. So it's exactly what we did in the last meditation. A sense of I comes up, no problem. I'm a person, I'm talking, there's Michelle, there's Jeffrey, and so forth. But then the reification of, well, that's the problem. In general, the mind that has the thought, I am, operates in one of three ways. One, takes, it, takes the I as distinguished, as distinguished by being truly existent. So one way of thinking I am is to reify yourself. I really am. Whatever. Yeah, I am. I'm, I'm here. I'm really, I'm really here, inherently here. I'm absolutely here. We're familiar with that. That's common. But it's not the only way that we can apprehend the self. The second way is the mind that takes the I as not truly existent, that sees that the I that is designated, that is conceived, is not truly existent, or takes it as a mere name or merely imputed by thought, seeing that one's existence is purely nominal or merely imputed by thought, conceptually designated. So, I remember having just a one-on-one conversation with Kepji Tijanabuchi, the junior tutor of Islam and Dalai Lama. This was also about 42 years ago. And he was discussing this, explaining it a bit to me. And he was pointing out some, I don't remember the exact details, but I do remember the gist of it. And he was saying that all phenomena are empty of inherent nature, like... We didn't have cell phones back then, but like, you know, whatever. Like your robe. The robe is yours. The robe is yours. Now, 44 years later, the cell phone's mine. right? But it's mine. That's a true statement. It's mine. But only because we agree. Just because we say it and we agree, therefore it's mine. But if we stop saying that, then it's not. So it is mine only because we've conceptually, I, I think this is mine, and other people agree, therefore it is. Or I say, this is mine, which one's mine? Oh, it's not that one. No, it looks like, no, this is mine. And that's it. But as soon as we shift the designation, that reality just evaporates. And he's saying all phenomena are like that. And when I listened to him, I thought, but everything else is different. Asteroids. You know, planets, dinosaurs. And they don't stop becoming dinosaurs just by not calling them dinosaurs anymore. So he dropped that, he suggested that, that in fact, like this, the minus of the cell phone, everything else, merely nominal. Well, for a brilliant mind, you just follow the implications and you see it. Well, that's true. Very brief example. Years later, 1985 or so. 1985, when I was studying physics and really specifically studying the energy of the vacuum and calculating the energy density of the vacuum. Okay, it's hard, and, but I studied enough mathematics, I could do it. But I found the text that showed the equations 
of how do you calculate the energy density of the vacuum, of empty space. How much energy is there in a, in a cubic centimeter of empty space? And as I recall, I think my memory is pretty clear here, this is only 30 years ago instead of 42, um, it was four equations. Four equations. Boom, boom, and each one is, you know, just a line, a line and a half. Boom, 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 boom. Finished. I looked at that and, and then it gave the right answer at the end. I mean, the fourth equation, there it is. And the, if you do the straight equations, the energy density is infinite. Infinite energy density. And there it was. And, he, and I looked at that. And then I went to my mentor and said, I don't get that at all. I mean, I can read the first line, but I just, I just don't get that. And he said, well, okay, we'll, we'll unpack it. And so with him and I think maybe another professor who knew their physics and their mathematics inside and out, they took me through it step by step. And we unpacked four equations he could pack into the middle of one page. And I unpacked that with prose explanation, so I was telling myself how I understood it, into 30 pages. 30 pages. And with equation upon equation, equation. But I needed to demonstrate to myself, I understand every single step here. I'm not brainwashed. I'm not just saying, you know, monkey see, monkey do. But it was, I think it was about 30 pages of unpacking those four equations and each time explaining, and this is how this next one follows, this is how this one follows. Nobody else needed to hear that, but I did, because I'm not very good at math. Uh, but then I did get to the end, and then when I got to it's infinite, I said, I got it. Now I understand it. But for me it was 30 pages of equations and prose explanation, whereas for a really good mathematician, I met one years later and showed him, and showed him my, uh, my 30 pages. And he was, you know, he was a professionally trained mathematician. And he said, I don't know what you concluded to, that was obvious on the first page. <laughs> Good. It was obvious to him, it wasn't obvious to me, otherwise I would have just read those four equations and said, I got it. Um, so that was a service. And that, and that, a person who really well trained, he sees, got it, got it. And you're finished in five minutes. For me it was probably a month or two of working through those 30 pages and explaining each step of the way. It's similar. It's similar. Right? And so, for a person like Kepji Tijanambashi, the junior tutor of His Holiness, he would see, oh yeah, the minus of the cell phone is not found among its parts, it's not separate, it's simply imputed upon that which is not mine. Yep, everything else is the same. <laughs> I'm serious. You know, if you have that kind of brilliance, you see it. Oh, you didn't get that. Okay, well then we'll take more examples. You know, and then you take it step by step and you spend, you spend four years studying Madhyamaka alone in, in the monastic universities of Tibet. Okay, back to the story. So, so there's the second way. It takes the I as not truly existent. It takes it as a mere name or merely imputed by thought. And the third mode, and I covered this earlier, maybe it will be ring a bell, the third mode does not take the I as real in either of those two ways. Doesn't see the I as inherently existent and doesn't see the I as being merely conceptually designated. Neither one. It's undifferentiated. Right? Of these three ways of thinking of I, the last, the third one, of just undifferentiated, not critical, not locking into it as being inherently existent or empty of inherent nature, the last is the designation validly applied to some mere conventional I. It's just working with, you know, where's, where's, where's Marianne? Oh, she's over there. And carrying on. Just like that. Or in a dream. You could be in a lucid dream. Right? This is a very good example. You could be in a lucid dream, 
and a lucid dream, Brendan can appear over there and said, Brendan, have you seen Mary, Mary Kay? And I'm lucid. Brendan doesn't even exist because he's just an apparition to my mind, but it looks like Brendan. And so Brendan can ask me, the lucid dreamer, uh, have you seen Mary Kay? In the context of this dream, because that's where I am, but I'm completely lucid. I said, yeah, Brendan, of course. Haven't you seen her? She's right over there. No delusion. I know I'm dreaming, but within this context, Brendan is over there. We don't like to know who he is. He's called Brendan. Her name is Mary Kay. Get to know each other. You know. But it's light. It's just nominal. Right. That would be using the words. In that case, you're actually seeing the emptiness of it. But you can use the words even without seeing the emptiness and just not, not reify, be hovering, floating a bit. Okay? So, the middle, and that is the one who sees the eye as not truly existent, occurs only in the mind stream of one who has definitely attained the Madhyamaka view. Such a person has realized emptiness. Only they actually see the eye as not inherently existent and does not occur in others. If you don't realize it, then there you go. And the first is grasping at a self of persons. Reifying the self of persons. Taking another person as one's referent object, what you're focusing on, and grasping that as truly existent, another person, is grasping at a self of persons. Remember, there's the self, self or identity of phenomena and the self of persons. These are the two categories. If you're focusing on someone else and you reify them, that's called grasping at a self or reifying a self of persons, but it is not the conate grasping at I. The conate grasping of I is focused only on yourself. It's simply a definitional issue. So we don't need to make a big deal of this. But the nunzin, it's called a dead grasping to the I, that, that's only you. But kansakidansin, kansakidak, dembarazimba, grasping to the true existence of the self of people, well, that could be anybody. Okay? This is just terminological finessing. The, the conate grasping at I, this is very technical speech, or the view of the transitory, and that's this, this whole composite, this aggregation of transitory bodily processes, bodily qualities, mental qualities, mental events, all of them in a state of transition, all of them in a state of flux. All right. The view of the transitory as being inherently existent. Okay. I mean, a lot is packed into that. Jigsokletawa is called in Tibetan. Okay. Grasping to the jigsokletawa, the composite of phenomena that are in the process of being destroyed. So the conate grasping at I, which is also called the view of the transitory, the delusional reifying view of the transitory, is the afflictive discrimination that grasps as inherently existent the object that has been intended, the object you're focusing on, the I of one's own mind stream. Okay? It's dense, but hopefully it's clear. And the I of one's own mind stream, that's just what we were looking at several minutes ago. That latter is produced by its own cause. This conate grasping to the eye is produced by its own cause. That is, it's just a habit. Earlier propensities lead to it happening again, which store more propensities and lead to it happening again. That latter is produced by its own cause, a subtle grasping at the sense self of phenomena. This is very important. This is a Madhyamaka theme, perfection of wisdom theme, uh, that I think is very deep, very important, and is mostly not to be found. 
hardly to be found in the, in the Pali Canon or in the Theravada tradition. In the, in the Pali Canon, the Theravada tradition, the kind of analysis, the Buddha himself does it, look through all your body parts, do you see anything that is I, right? Individually or collectively. Look through all your mental process, your feelings, your discernments, mental visions, thoughts, emotions, and so forth. Do you see any of them, are any of them individually or all of them collectively you? Okay, how about the complex of this whole complex array of bodily and mental events, individually or collectively, are any of them you? And the answer is no, all the way through. And then you can ask, okay, apart from this, this, these five aggregates of form and mental events and so forth, apart from them, setting them all aside with all their complex interactions, all the enormously complex interactions of the brain, almost inconceivably complex, apart from all of that, do you exist as something separate from that, autonomous from, apart from? No evidence. No evidence. And on that basis, you can see the, the five aggregates are empty of the self, and the self does not exist as something apart from them, independent of them. Now, that I think all Theravada Buddhists would accept, with really good sound reasoning. Does that mean that the self doesn't exist at all? One could easily leap to that conclusion, and then you've leapt, leapt into nihilism. Right? And they don't do that. They don't do that. I mean, most Theravada Buddhists are certainly not nihilists. And Buddha was certainly not advocating nihilism. How you do reinstate the self conventionally? Well, different Theravadans have different views there. But I won't linger there. But there's a lot of agreement there, right? Non-self, emptiness of self, right? None of the parts are the self. The whole aggregation, aggregate of body-mind is empty of some autonomous self, an agent, a person like that. But that's pretty much where the analysis stops. Because, by and large, apart from the Bhikkhuni Vajira and then Nagasena, the chariot, both times using the chariot as the analogy, by and large, it is assumed, without being challenged, that the five skandhas, your physical form, your whole physical aggregate, and your feelings, and your discernments, and all mental formations, and all your six modes of consciousness, and the entire physical world around you, are inherently real. It's metaphysical realism. It's not something you learn from the Pali Canon, like you just got indoctrinated into a Buddhist worldview, or you learn from the Theravada interpretation of the Pali Canon. It's an assumption we had already, and it's not very explicitly challenged in the Pali Canon or the Theravada. By and large, it's kind of implicitly or explicitly accepted. right? But then we do have Nagasena coming along and saying, you know, challenging the king, did you, did you walk here? Because I didn't find the chariot anywhere, neither among its parts nor apart from its parts. He's doing exactly the same analysis that is commonly done in all schools of Buddhism with respect to the self, the person, and our relationship with our body-mind. And then he's doing this like, whoa, you just stepped outside the box. And you did this to a chariot. And you're actually mocking the king, you know, doing it which Galileo did to the Pope. It's generally not a good idea. <laughs> They'll send you to a room, you know, stay in your room, you're grounded for life. That's what happened to Galileo. But Nagasena then took that same reasoning and applied it to the chariot. Well, if you apply it to the chariot, where do you stop? Where do you stop? Is there something special about chariots? You know, and the answer from the Madhyamaka perspective, that's, the, that's a, just a smooth segue 
into the perfection of wisdom, the Madhyamaka, and all of that. And it's right there from a, from, from a Shravaka Arhat, Mahasena. And interestingly, in the first East-West Island, <coughs> between a Buddhist and a representative of Western culture, a Greek king. You know, very interesting. And in the, in the, in the Heart Sutra, Pumamapateta Layang Ranjikitomba, having recognized that the self, the person, is empty of inherent nature. The five skandhas too are empty of inherent nature. Oh, now the, well, the avalanche has started now. Now the avalanche has started. Nagasena started with throwing the pebble of a chariot. And then just watch the pebbles fall. I mean, what stands up to that avalanche? Elementary particles, galaxies, space, time, matter, energy. What stands up to that kind of ontological analysis of parts and wholes? And any entity that has attributes gets cut down with the same analysis. Which means that the self, you, I, we're no more empty than a chariot or a piece of lead or a planet, a galaxy, or a universe. No more, no less. And for exactly the same reason. So what the Pinchinamuchi is saying here is you may have gained some insight into the emptiness of yourself, which after all is a bit abstract. And we find neuroscientists saying there's no self. We find psychologists, some academic psychologists saying the word self has no referent. You know, it's not that hard to draw that conclusion. Uh, and so forth. But even if you have that insight, some insight into the emptiness of your own inherent nature, that you exist only nominally, if you're still reifying your body, reassigning your feelings, your thoughts, your emotions, your mental activities and states of consciousness, if you're still reifying them, then the great demon of reification will come back and bite you in the ass. It's going to get you from behind. Because it's still there. It's unquestioned. You've just lopped the... It's like a weed. I spent hundreds of hours pulling weeds at 50 cents an hour when I was a teenager. And I know very well if you just pull up, we all know this, you just pull off the top, you know, the easy part, so the guy who's paying you doesn't see it anymore. <laughs> just, you know, pull it off, and the root's perfectly happy down below. You stay employed that way. <laughs> <laughs> Can you come back? Those doggone weeds came back. Oh, really? <laughs> so that's it. You've cut off the, the, this, the, the part above ground, and the whole root system of reifying your, your body and mind, your five skandhas, untouched. And that's why he's saying, if you have not eradicated the reification of your skandhas, the reification of self will return. That's what he's saying right here. I think it's very compelling. I mean, this is for us to evaluate each of us. I'm not here to just tell you this is the soul and you have to believe me, but I find that very compelling. So, so as, yep. That latter is produced by its own cause, a subtle grasping of the self of phenomena. Again, I'm always going to say the identity of phenomena, but self, many people accept that, fine, as long as they know what it means. But it's something that we conately grasp to, the inter- inherent nature of the identity of all types of phenomena. It's just a nominal difference. I'm not going to make a big deal out of it. As stated by the, the guardian Nagarjuna, as long as there's grasping at the aggregates, grasping here means reification of, there will be grasping at an eye in them. There will be reification of the eye amongst the aggregates. When there is, when there is grasping at eye or reification of eye, there is also karma. 
that empowers the activation of karma that propels you from lifetime to lifetime, and through karma there is rebirth. Very pithy, very to the point, and I find it very compelling. Since it is the root of samsara, one cannot abandon self-grasping without repudiating the fixated object that is the object of that grasping. For the king of reasoning, Dharmakirti states, this, this is very, very dense. It's, it's clear, it's straight, but he's compacting an awful lot in a few words. It's very important. And that is, so we reify all kinds of stuff. Okay? But then we're not reifying when we're in deep dreamless sleep. Your, your conceptual mind is dormant. So you're not reifying yourself or sleep or anything else. You're just asleep, right? Go into deep samadhi. You may not be reifying anything, anything in there. Conceptual mind shut down. You're not labeling, you're not conceiving, and so forth. Uh, or you may just learn how to just so rest, let's say an open presence, just totally rest. Now with your eyes wide open, your senses all wide open, and just totally rest and think maybe this is Dzogchen. I'm just totally, I'm, I'm vivid, I'm clear, I'm discerning, I'm totally at rest. Whatever thoughts are coming up, I just, I just let them arise and pass. And I'm just resting here in this openness, this spaciousness, utterly at ease. Mental afflictions come up, they don't afflict. I'm seeing appearances, and I'm not reifying anything, and maybe I'm a bhijadara. Okay? Very easy to think. Because for that time, as far as you can tell, you're not grasping at or reifying anything. Right? So you can say, well, this, this was much easier than Majyamaka. <laughs> you know? I just stopped grasping. I just turned off the switch, I turned off the motor of reification. And I'm just resting here, the fool on the hill, you know, like that. Is it enough? That's what he's getting at right here. And the answer comes from one of the greatest epistemologists and logicians in the whole history of Indian Buddhism, Dharmakirti. And the answer is it's not enough. It's not enough to stop reifying. Any more than it's enough to stop smoking. Or I saw an article yesterday this, the, the biggest losers, people are extremely overweight and then they have a contest to see who can lose the most weight. And that's a contest, you know, people find that entertaining, I guess. You know. But then when the show's over and somebody got the prize for being the biggest loser, what happens to the people that lost 300, 400 pounds? Pretty much they get it back. They lost it, they found it again. You know. And so it wasn't enough to lose the weight. It wasn't enough to stop eating too much. It's not enough to stop smoking. It's not enough to stop drinking. You have to know this will kill me. You have to know it so compellingly that knowing that that will kill me, know that this will destroy my health, know that this will you know, have a lot of negative impact for everybody around me who loves me. Uh, you have to know that. And not just stop. Maybe somebody says, you, you stop or I'll punish you. Okay, I'll stop. Until that person goes away. Oh good, now I won't be punished. Not enough to stop. And this is what Dharmakirti, this is what Pinchinamuchi is saying. At this point, I have to haul out one of my favorite psychological jokes. At least half of you heard it. Please laugh at the appropriate time. <laughs> the little boy who thought he was a kernel of corn. You remember? It's a great story. But it exactly illustrates this point. Okay? It really does. It's a nice joke. It's funny. But it's a good joke because it's smart. So in the story comes everybody. I'm sure somebody listening by podcast doesn't know I'm about to say, I'm about to entertain you. Everybody else, be patient. 
There was a little boy who had the psychosis of believing delusionally that he was a kernel of corn, a little grain of corn. And his parents who were living out on a farm, they were upset, his son was dysfunctional, thinking he's a kernel of corn. So they sent him off to a mental institute, mental asylum. He got intensive sustained therapy. And eventually they released him from the asylum. He said, we think your son is fine. Uh, and so then the son was released, he comes back home, his parents greet him with open arms, happy to see little Johnny is home. And they ask him first off, Johnny, do you think you're a kernel of corn? He said, no, 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 I'm, I'm fine, I, I'm not a kernel of corn. So then they're relieved, everybody's happy, hanging out. Until a few days later, Johnny comes rushing in, slams the screen door behind him, he's trembling, he's quaking, he's obviously terrified out of his wits. And his parents come and said, oh, Johnny, you don't think that you're a kernel of corn again, do you? And he said, no, but the chickens out there don't know that. <laughs> it's good, yeah? <laughs> and it perfectly illustrates this point, that he'd stopped for a while. The therapist told him, don't think you're a kernel of corn. You're not a kernel of corn. Don't think that. Don't think that. People get upset. Your parents make him really unhappy. They're freaking out. Stop thinking that. Stop thinking that. He said, and then he learned, okay, I'll stop thinking that. Until he's out among the chickens. And he hasn't realized that he's not a kernel of corn. He just stopped thinking that way. But he couldn't persuade the, the chickens to not identify him as a kernel of corn. And therefore, he's panic-stricken. Right? You have to realize that that self that you apprehend when you reify yourself doesn't exist at all. It's not enough to stop reifying. When you do reify, and you identify how you appear to yourself, how you are conceived by yourself, when you're reifying yourself, when you see that that reified self that you're identifying with does not exist at all, which of course is not to say you don't exist at all, but the object of your self-concept when you're reifying yourself, that doesn't exist at all. Like the Napoleon right here sitting on this couch, or this chair. When you realize that, then you won't grasp that which you know to be non-existent. Because you're, you're really free of it. Once you know that there is no such self, then you won't grasp onto that which you know doesn't exist. That's what he's getting at. It's a really crucial point. And in Tibetan Buddhism, it's often overlooked. We get phrases like, Zimba Jung the Tao Met, among the four partings of partings from the four types of craving from the Sakya tradition. If grasping occurs, there is no view. Well, that is true. That is true. If reification occurs, you don't have the view of the middle way. That is true. But if you just stop grasping, that doesn't mean you have the view. It just means for a while you've stopped grasping. Maybe you're comatose. Maybe you've had general anesthesia. Maybe you're just sitting like the fool on the hill with a blank mind gazing into the sky with a happy smile. But if you haven't realized that you, for starters, do not exist inherently, then it will come back. It will come back. And one easy way for it to come back is come out of your cave and have somebody insult you. And uh, see what comes up. Okay, that took a long time. We're almost all, already okay. But let's quote Dhammakirti. I think we can go faster from the future. But hopefully this was meaningful. I know I went this tangent, this tangent, but it was intentional. All and the whole point here is that we're not here as an intellectual exercise. We don't need to be in retreat for that. We could do an online course. Not there's nothing wrong with online courses, but nobody needs to come here and, and travel halfway on the world and so forth to have an intellectual course on Madhyamaka. 
There are many good books, many good online courses. Really, really good. Right? Don't need that. This is a place where we can receive teaching and immediately integrate them with practice and have nothing else to do. You know, no other demands on our time. That's really making the best use of this time here. It's not a time just to acquire information for the sake of information. So Dharma Keita states, without repudiating, its, without repudiating or seeing the absence of its object, it is referring to the reifying mind that reifies oneself. Without repudiating its object, without seeing the absence of its object, you will not abandon, you will not be able to abandon self-grasping or reification. So the fixated objects of grasping at a truly existent individual, there's one, grasping at a truly existent I, so individuals more generic, you, he, they, and so forth, grasping at a truly existent I, that's up close and personal, oneself, grasping at a truly existent, grasping at a truly existent person are, person, so individual and person, drawing a, a subtle distinction there, these are respectively, a, uh, the fixated object is a truly existent individual, a truly existent I and a truly existent person. Thus, it is necessary to eradicate them. Okay. So, we didn't make much headway in the text, but I think now that we've kind of laid groundwork, we can move more quickly. And in fact, the very next one is going into practice. Because he's here also. This is meditation manual. This is not a Majamaka treatise just to learn how to debate and all of that and get a theoretical understanding. He's giving you just enough theory to put it right into practice, and that's where he's going immediately. And that's where we'll go tomorrow. As for eradicating them, okay, as for eradicating, they are to be viewed as not truly existent because having ascertained that a person is not truly existent, one accustoms oneself to that view and reverses grasping at the person as truly existent. For these reasons, I will first demonstrate on the basis of experiential pith instructions. Now we know about it's about practice. The way the object of negation appears and the way it is grasped. Okay? So he's really set this up. Really set this. And now he's ready to go right into pith instructions. Whenever you see that term, menga in Tibetan or Upadesha in Sanskrit, you know, okay, this is where the rubber hits the road. Here's where you take the theory, the categories, the nomenclature, and so forth. And now here's how you apply it. Here's how you take the medicine. And actually you can really get some benefit. Okay? Well, that's all. Kept you on a little bit late. But I won't apologize. Because I don't feel sorry. Enjoy your evening. See you tomorrow.